you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 26. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 26. I forgot to check the page number of that in the Pew Bible, so if anybody turns there and wants to let us know, uh, it's okay. If you're using the, the words in your bulletin, that's fine too, or in your own Bible. 763 if you're using the Pew Bible, 763. Thank you, Pat. If you're new to the Bible and you're kind of looking through it and trying to figure out how to make your way through it or understand what we're talking about, the large numbers are chapters uh, of each book and the small numbers are verses. So you, we're in chapter 40 of Isaiah and verses 12 to 26, so the large 40 and then the 12 to 26. Let me pray and we will begin. Lord, this morning as we open your word, we cry out for, we plead for you to show us your supremacy, show us your immensity, your majesty, the splendor of who you are above all things. Lord, this is something that all of us the, eye, the eyes of our hearts must see the splendor and the supremacy of who you are. We need this for our survival. We need this for the sake of our souls today. So we plead for it. We yearn for it through Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. You don't hear much small talk at the Grand Canyon. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon. Mather Point in the south rim of the Grand Canyon has one of those natural platforms. You've probably seen it in postcards or on TV or in movies where it kind of walks out on this platform where you pretty quickly go from the parking lot and cars and trees and natural terrain or familiar terrain out to this natural platform that just juts out into the Grand Canyon with the vast canyon, the great deep walls, the Colorado River below, all of that just standing before you in its total immensity. All of it beckoning, beckoning you to behold something that is far beyond what you know or are familiar with. That is not the place that families talk about or, or debate who's going to do the dishes that day. It's not the place where you talk about, oh yeah, we have that meeting with our accountant next week. The mundane, the busyness of life seems to be left in the car when you step into the immensity of the Grand Canyon. My goal in our passage today is to help us to step into something far more immense, infinitely more supreme. May God drown out our small talk and may we be captivated by Him 
as we see what I'm going to argue for you from Isaiah 40, 12 to 26, we are going to see God's supremacy over all things is our confidence in all things. Let me say that again. God's supremacy over all things is our confidence as His people, as Christians, in all things. So first in verses 12 to 20, we see God's supremacy over all things as we start to make our way through this. Previously in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, God commissioned words of comfort to His people. A people desperately in need of comfort, coming upon a century of being enslaved, being held captive, exiled from their homeland under the authority of the Babylonian superpower over them. And God sent word of comfort to them. I'm going to deliver you from your captivity. I'm going to do this by your repentance and by your trust in my word. And then uniquely at the end of that section in uh, uh, verses 1 through 11, God then commissioned his people to go to the hilltops and make it known that he is there as a comfort for all who will come to him and find rest. But it's strange because he commissions them to go proclaim this message. But how do you commission a people to go proclaim a message when those people are still shackled to the ground in which they are enslaved? as if you're commissioning somebody to go run a marathon, but saying, first, let me tie these concrete blocks to your feet. So they're asking this, they're hearing this, in one sense they're saying, this sounds like really good news, God. But in another sense, they're hearing this and saying, okay, and how are we going to do this, God? Who is behind these promises? Well, what we see is God shows himself behind these promises and he addresses a danger that we face today. And that is a danger that if we are not vigilant to anchor our minds, if we're not diligent to to anchor our souls to God's supremacy over us and over all things, then we will fall into that vicious, frequent snare of when our problems get big, our view of God gets small. And so look at verses 12 through 14 as God begins to explain who it is that is behind these promises of comfort for His people. Who is it that is behind the promises of the Gospel that you and I share as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, verses 12 and 14. 12 through 14. Verses 12 to 26 for that matter answers this. God says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God's basically saying, who was there with me when I set all this in order? Who was there with me, informing me as if I need more wisdom as I watch the events of the world transpire? And the answer is nobody. You alone are God. 
perfect in power and in knowledge, in insight and in wisdom. Creation mythologies of Isaiah's day, of the people of Judah whom he was writing to of their day, familiar contemporary creation mythologies uh, told of competing forces that were in conflict. There maybe was a God or competing divine beings who had to work together in order for something good to come about. Something of created order to come about. But Isaiah, what he does is he lifts our God high as the one true God who is perfect in power over his creation. And what he shows us is that the, the, the theology of God's greatness, the theology of his immensity, the theology of his supremacy over all things is not some fodder for dinner table conversations or not something that we marvel at or discuss uh, uh, as we try to answer jeopardy questions at night rather what we need is we need this for the sake of our souls and for the sake of our sanity when our problems are getting big in fact i would put before you the greatest thing that we need in our church today And not because there's anything unique about our church, but because we proclaim to be a people of allegiance and obedience and following this God. So every church needs this. The greatest thing we need in our church is not a renovated sanctuary, though in some ways that would be nice. Not big giving, as if we could be flush with cash and have all our problems met. We don't need... Our greatest need is not highly skilled preachers or musicians. All of these things are nice, would be nice. The single greatest thing our church family needs is a profoundly deep awareness of the gravitas, of the immensity of God over everything. This is one reason we have begun to pause in silence at the beginning of our worship service. We enter into, enter into this room after another hurried, busy week. To-do list that we marked some things off, but some things had to get that familiar punt to the next week. Okay, I'll take care of it next week. In the busyness and the loudness of all that goes on in our world, we pause from the hurry of life and try to orient our minds around the greatness of our God. It's interesting It's beautiful. Anyone is welcome to join us for a worship service. Perhaps you are here today. And you might have wanted those who were around you to maybe not sit so close because you feel like I don't really belong in church. If the lightning comes for me, I'd hate for you to get burned. And yet what we find is that People angry with God. People who doubt or deny God. People who struggle to trust God. Whoever it is, they are welcome to join with us for our worship service. But what we are not welcome to do is to worship a false God. What we have a responsibility to do is to try to calibrate ourselves to the greatness of our God when the rest of the week our hearts have struggled to believe that not God is supreme, but everything else is supreme, and we have subtly maybe tried to make God subservient to that which we believe to be ultimate. And in gathering together as a church family to worship, we reorient our minds. 
One pastor has commented on this passage like this. He has written, If God makes little impact on the lives of Christians, if our churches are not wonderfully heavy with the felt presence of God, is God being glorified in us? We, speaking of Western churches, oftentimes uh, 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 having all of their needs met physically, materially, and yet we seem to have sunk to the level of quick-stop churches where God is expected to lubricate the vehicle of American selfishness. Many churches have never known what it's like for God to come down and dwell among them in glory. And allow me, brothers and sisters, to point out something to you that when I first started really studying this passage in depth this week in preparation for this sermon, this is what reoriented this uh, or, or, or what properly oriented my mind to this passage. One of the great purposes of Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26, is not that we would see God through our eyes, but that we would see God as He sees Himself through His eyes. If we were going to rightly understand God, we don't build our understanding of Him from our perception. We receive it from who He has revealed Himself to be. There's a correlation here with something we see in how we understand the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. The Apostle Paul quoted Isaiah 40 verse 13 in Romans chapter 11 verse 34 as he sought to worship God in the midst of his, his, the, the unfolding, uh, mysterious unfolding of the sovereign grace of God in the lives of Jewish people and of Gentiles or non-Jews. And he wrote, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? And he wrote this in one sense, ultimately exulting in praise to God. I cannot explain the ways in which He works, and yet here I am, one who has been brought to see the light of the glory of our God and Creator. And may that be the cry of our hearts today. None of us swagger into church saying, wow, God is lucky to have me as a part of His people. Rather, we humbly enter in here and say, who am I that this great God would invite me to know Him. What we see in this passage, let me read verses 12 to 14 again. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Let's go on, verse 15 and following. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Here's what's happening in verse 15 through 17. 
see the progression of, of, of how God uh, uh, regards human, human strength, human intellect, human capability. Broad human strength at, at the beginning of verse 15. The nations, yet they're accounted like dust before Him. His creation, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Religious offerings in verse 16. Lebanon, this region north of Judah, was known for heavily dense forest with, with rich wood that could be used for burning. It says, if all of Lebanon was cut down and used for fuel, if all of the beasts of it were to be an offering, that would not suffice. And then verse 17, all the nations... It's not that they are unimportant before him as if he's flexing his muscle, barreling around the room while stepping on us. No, but what's, what he's saying is that all that mankind can muster, we have no power before God. Our greatest technologies, our most advanced scientific innovations, our most powerful bombs, none of these can measure up to the force of might and the sublime majesty of God who simply is and always has been and always will be. Let me ask you, how can you be bored with this God? Does this sound like a God that we can be bored with? And if you asking this rhetorically and thinking about this, if you say, yeah, I, I kind of am bored with God. I deal with this interest towards God. Does that say more about him or about you? Many of you know I had COVID a few weeks ago. I'm feeling fine. My taste and smell have been stubborn to return, but thankfully they actually have started to return. Yesterday was a positive step. I could smell some things. But maybe that's kind of where you are in regards to God. At one time in your life, you could taste, you could smell. Now your senses are kind of dulled towards Him. He's bland, he's boring, unexciting. May I urge you, if that is the case with you, you, you profess to being a follower of Christ. You're just kind of bored with him. Pray that you could spiritually and taste and see the Lord again. Pray that he would awaken this taste and, this taste and smell to enjoy him again. My friends, if we are bored with God, that's an us problem, not a God problem. Now let me consider perhaps you don't know God. Yet you don't know Him, you don't follow Him because you're bored with Him or you don't believe Him to be true or you, you have doubts, you have questions, you have concerns. What I would urge you as we walk through this passage to consider is that maybe it is not the God of the Bible that you have problems or concerns with, but it is your conception of God that you reject and have problems and concerns with. Let me tell you, I would not be a Christian. I would not be a pastor. If this God was boring, if, if, if there was something more captivating I could do with my life, I would do that. I'd be out golfing, I'd be surfing, I'd be skydiving or something. I would not be a Christian if this God was not superior in majesty and in the thrill that He alone offers to all who will come and behold Him. 
Perhaps you've had throughout your life some kind of loose connection, some kind of affiliation, uh, keeping God at arm's distance, trying to stay in the same room with Him, trying to stay warm from the fire but not getting too close to it. But what Isaiah 40 is revealing to you and to me is that we have been eating tasteless, stale morsels while if we refuse to come before Him, we have been rejecting the abundant feast that is awaiting But where is this feast found? How do we come before him? If we see in verse 16 that there is this, 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 all of the sacrifices of Lebanon, all the trees that could be cut down, all of the beasts of the field that could be offered as sacrifices, if that won't suffice before God, what sacrifice do I bring before him in order to come to him and behold him and find a majesty about him that I don't truly currently know? Well, what we see, not only in Isaiah 40, but throughout the whole Bible, is that The way in which we come to God, this God, is not by building any sacrifice that we can muster, but He is so supreme in His might that the only sacrifice that will satisfy on our part is the sacrifice of Himself coming to us. There's one sacrifice throughout human history that has been perfectly capable of of meeting the needs of of our souls, of our hearts, to be able to come before him. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins on the cross. It is through the work of Jesus. It is through his atonement on the cross. That we are able to, to, to jump a chasm that is far greater than the Grand Canyon. That we are able to traverse a chasm from our sense of boredom with God, from our sense of disinterest, from our sense of not even sure if we believe that He is real, or not even sure if we believe that He can keep the promises that He says to make in His Word. It is only through Christ and His work in us that that chasm is leaped, and we are able then to enter into the presence of God and find in Him a beauty and a majesty that we thought was impossible with Him, and that we thought we, that we didn't even know existed, because it could not be found anywhere else but in Him. And so what Isaiah 40 holds up for us is the supremacy of God over creation, but also the supremacy of God in the gospel. And yet what we see is that as we consider the human experience, we oftentimes try to assemble our own wood for building the fire of our sacrifices. We try to do it from our personal Lebanon. We tell ourselves there's a moral standard that I must beat. There's a a, a societal uh, responsibility that I must feel. Care about the right causes. Seek to save and preserve the environment. Fight for civil rights. If only I did these things, which are very good things, don't get me wrong. But if only I did these things and met this standard of my neighbors around me, or met this created standard in my own mind, then I would then meet the demands that are placed upon me before God. But God speaks to that in verses 18 to 20. He says in verse 18 and following, To to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. See this imagery here. God says, okay, you... Now, your nature's people is to try to build a little idol and you, you bring your supplies before it and you put your, 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 your materials on it and you try to build it and say, that looks good. I think I'll serve that. And that is what our hearts do 
When we try to craft ways in which we think that we can approach the God that we've created in our own mind. What but Isaiah 40 does is it transcends and it comes down upon this and it reorients, it, it, it blows away our, our perceived notions of what it means to know God. And it says to us, no, you know God through how I set the terms and how I make the rules. And what I'm revealing to you is a God that is far greater than you can, can conceive of on your own and a God that is far more gracious to you than you can imagine because this is a God that you don't build but a God that comes to you. But the, the, the trick of it is, is that by Him coming to us, we don't set the terms on what obedience looks like, and we don't set the terms on what worship of Him looks like, but He set the, sets the terms in accord with His glory and in accord with our good. The idolatry of our hearts is not building little statues and worshiping them, but it's in fact building God in accord with what we want Him to be and expecting Him to come down and somehow funnel Himself into that mold. Idolatry is trying to bring God down here and not allowing Him to grab hold of us and lift us up to Him to exult in His greatness over all things. To have the curtain pulled back that we might see His glory in a way that causes the things of this earth to grow strangely dim. And so throughout Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 20, as we've seen, we've seen the supremacy of God over all things broadly, but now we must see it particularly towards us. We've been introduced to the concept, but now we must be prescribed the particular plan for our own learning, for our own implementation of this. So if verses 12 to 20 show us the supremacy of God over all things, now verses 21 to 26 show us the supremacy of God over us. You see verses 12 to 14, if you were to look back there real quick, I'm not going to read them again, but they start with questions. Basically saying, who do you think you are? (laughs) In one sense, who do you think you are? In another sense, as you sit there in your Babylonian captivity and you wonder, how, am I, how is God going to get me out of this? Then listen to me say, who do you think you are in thinking I can't get you out of this? Well, now this new section begins with more questions in, verses 20, in verse 21 and following. Listen to them. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What he's saying here, pause real quick. You know these truths... That you have learned, but do you understand them? What he's saying to his people who, 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 under, who, who had all their Bible stories and had, had their rich heritage throughout the Old Testament. The great truths of the gospel that we sing on Sundays. Brothers and sisters, they must be the promises that tune the melody of our hearts the rest of the week. The greatness of God over all things. The love of God laser focused upon his people. His love is not a vague, indirect term as if it falls upon us like a nice warm blanket, like a nice covering of snow. No, it's a love that is targeted, that is direct, that is implanted in His people. That they might be warmed in the cold by a white hot heat of His love shown to us, His love revealed to us, His love indwelling us by His Spirit. So the greatness of God, the love of God, the promise of God to faithfully guard and keep His people. All of these things that we profess to be true, have they taken root in us? That's what verse 21 is saying. You answer your Bible questions good, but do you believe it? 
Verse 22 and following. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out like, it is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Look at the imagery here. The world and all that it contains. Moving around in a manner that appears to be one thing, but they're only swimming with the current of God's sovereign will over all things. When we pray, we are not praying to God as if we're calling our insurance agent to report damage or a loss. We're calling upon the king who rules over the world. And in prayer, we're reminding ourselves of this desperately necessary truth that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens. He brings princes to nothing. The science experiments that we do that unlock further advance in medical breakthroughs or in clean energy breakthroughs, these experiments must lead to exaltation of the God who upholds the rules of science in the palm of His hand. The technological advances that streamline production and execution of complex processes for the thriving and good of humanity. These advances must lead to the adoration of the God whose knowledge is inexhaustible. Vladimir Putin and Russian forces staging on the border of Ukraine. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Xi Jinping and the genocide of Uyghurs and human rights abuses in China. He brings princes to nothing. And makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Kim Jong-un and North Korea's frequent testing of ballistic missiles. He brings princes to nothing. And makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. History records world leader after world leader after world leader who overplayed their hand. Believing themselves to be supreme when in fact they are not remembered except in the dusty, obscure pages of history books. God illustrates this in verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. As I was preparing this sermon, I initially thought, okay, the truth of this passage puts world leaders across the globe, congressional leaders in the halls of Washington, Supreme Court, to justices, to governors on Beacon Hill, any other official office, all the way from president to dog catcher and anything in between, not as evil or wrong, but properly understood. But then it dawned on me that though this is true, this is incomplete for you and I. This speaks to us, not as if we are great power brokers, not as if any of us have the powers to move the levers of culture and society and government. We don't have the power to shape our entertainment or our monetary policy, but these claims of Isaiah 40, they are servants of our souls in orienting our minds towards understanding and rejoicing in the supremacy of God over our days, over our times, over our generations. Like a ship sailing across rough oceans, the church is steadily sailing through history. God denying secularism has not stopped her. God ignoring self-worship has not stopped her. God confusing superstition as if he's my little idol that I place right here has no claim upon her. 
for all of the follies of vain glory seeking the world leaders exhibit and that your heart and my heart exhibits as well? God says, you want to see something immensely beautiful? You want to see something stirringly majestic? He says, I don't amass my armies on borders to take small stretches of planet Earth. I've set the stars in the sky. I've named them. I control them by my might. Look at verse 25 and 26. He says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Lift up your eyes and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Do you see what God is saying to his people here? The Babylonian rulers who would like nothing more than to destroy little old Judah, they are but stubble, twisting and blowing in the wind. But I have created the stars. I have hung them in the sky. I've named them. I've numbered them. I've called them in and out of supernovas. They burn at a million, billion degrees Fahrenheit. That's not scientific. That's my guess. And they are far beyond what your eyes can see. And they are solely for the glory of my Describing the vastness of space, the universe, galaxies, asteroids, comets, stars, and black holes. One uh, thing I read this week said that our solar system is inside the galaxy called the Milky Way. This galaxy we live in is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space. With our solar system rotating around the center once every million years or so. So in our lifetimes, we're not going to make it around that rotation of the, gal- uh, of the Milky Way. We lie about two-thirds of the way out from the center of the galaxy here in our little solar system. In fact, in regards to the Milky Way, where we are as little old planet Earth, we're out in the boondocks. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across, containing over 100 billion stars, and to count them one by one would take us approximately 3,000 years. And according to the latest probings of the Hubble Space Telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. Hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, our little old Milky Way housing over 100 billion stars. Within those 100 billion stars in the galaxy, uh, used to be nine, now eight planets, sorry Pluto, uh, revolving around the sun. And here we sit, feeble, Stretched out, thinned out because of COVID. Pressures of this world, your own heart worrisome over whatever this week may hold. And this is exactly where God would have us. I love it when I'm freshly attuned to my weaknesses and my fears. But I only love it when I've got Isaiah 40, 12 to 26 bolstering me. I have hope. I have hope that this little band of unimpressive, normal people that we call our church family, saints, redeemed through that perfect sacrifice that God has accomplished through His Son, redeemed by His precious blood,
I have hope that us, our church family, this little band of saints, insignificant in our work, insignificant in our comings and goings, we go to the grocery store, we stop by the post office, the dry cleaners, frustrated by the home improvement project that we can't quite complete, bearing the weight of concerns for our children, our grandchildren, this little band of saints, unimpressive in so many ways, going about our day by day. And that is where God would have us. And do you know why? With all of the baggage, with all of the things that you think, yeah, that does make me unimpressive. That does make me nothing to write home about. I don't know why God would want me as a part of His people. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 40 helps us to rejoice in our insignificance. Because when we rejoice in and are aware of our insignificance, that is what it takes to behold God's significance. Every single night, God drops the curtain on the skies. The spotlight that we think is on us is lifted and we hear the symphony of His glory as the stars dance across the sky. Let me read this again. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them, out, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might and because He is strong in power. Not one is missing. God forgets to give us something here. He forgets to give us the instruction. Okay, go do this because I've shared this with you. Go do this. Go do this. He doesn't give us that. He just gives us himself. This was written to give hope to a people insignificant in their own right and incapable of doing anything about it. Remember, they were tied down. What's situate in this surrounding community does not need is for us to be impressed with ourselves. The community needs to be impressed by our God. It's hard for our world around us to be impressed with our God when we are so impressed with ourselves. Let us trust that he can build his church, even though believers, even though our beliefs, excuse me, may be out of step with our world and our hearts may be fearful. You may even ask yourself, what would he have for me to do in his church? He will use you and he will use me. But you and I can know that he will use what he will use that will have the true power in building his church is the glory of His name. No, there's not much small talk at the Grand Canyon. May we know and understand that we do not trust a small God with our lives and with our church. Oh, that God would give us the grace of consuming us with His supremacy in all things. In these days of small and seemingly insignificant things, May God's supremacy over all things be our confidence.
in all things. Let's pray together. God, your greatness is a gift in revealing our smallness. And our smallness will only find hope that is true and that is lasting and that is authentic when we behold you and your greatness. And so, Lord, we give to you praise. We pray that you would write these truths of your supremacy upon our hearts and upon our minds. That they may be our refrain throughout the day, throughout the week, when our problems arise and try to tell us our God is small. Rather, may our God be great, our hope be deep, and our souls be at peace. You who named and numbered the stars and hung them in the sky, dancing around for the glory of your name, Your word tells us that far greater than this is the fact that you have called us by name and brought us into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And in him we pray and in him we hope. And in him we find your greatness is not just something that we look at. But your greatness can be beheld, can be known can be found. Through Christ we pray. Amen.